Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I'm the founder and CEO of Mara Poling. With you this week for the third part of our three-part series on the importance of net operating income. This week's session is a podcast plus. That means that in addition to the content you can access by listening to us today, through your favorite podcast provider. You can also visit the Learning Center at marapolling.com and go to the Multifamily Real Estate channel where you'll find video content of today's session. I also am happy to send you a copy of the slide deck that we're using for not just today's session, but for the last two-week sessions so that you'll have all three parts. All you have to do is shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G dot com. The importance of NOI. Over the last three weeks, we have discussed what NOI is, how you calculate it, what you can do to improve it. And this week, we're going to be looking at how NOI affects valuations and the sale of assets, the purchase of new assets, the value-add work that we do, and more. As always, if you have questions, feel free to shoot me an email. Again, that's pat at marapolling.com. If you are listening to our session, again, you might consider going and checking out the Podcast Plus version. If you happen to be watching the Podcast Plus uh, version, please make sure you visit uh, our podcast through whatever provider you prefer and uh, subscribe so that you don't lose out on any of our content that we post weekly. So with that, let's just do a quick review. So two weeks ago, we talked about net operating income. What is it? How do we calculate it? How is it connected to cash and cash flow, the yield that we get off of an investment? And what's the relationship to the growth in equity? The second session, which is what we did last week, was about how do we optimize returns? What are the levers we can use to grow NOI, to move rents, to manage vacancy, to deal with OPEX, and the rest? This week, we're going to talk about a lot of the valuation components. One, we're going to talk about adjusted NOI, cap rates, some non-NOI items that do fit into the equation, and then beyond NOI, what's, what's kind of next? All right, let's start with adjusted NOI. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I've been talking for a couple weeks about how important NOI is in a variety of ways, and what is this adjusted NOI? Why are we suddenly talking about monkeying around with the calculation? Well, that's a great question. In general, we don't want to adjust NOI. We want to leave it alone because it is an important number. However, there are times when the NOI calculation gives us a number that doesn't really tell the accurate picture of what's going on. So I'll give you a couple examples. When we go out and look at an acquisition, we'll receive a T12, a trailing 12 set of financials. And this has uh, to varying degrees of D12. 
detail and accuracy, all the revenue items and all the expense items that add up to make NOI broken down by month for the last 12 months. It is not uncommon when we look at that that there'll be items missing or items that are included that really aren't part of how we would typically think about net operating income or possibly other events that may have occurred that really need to be addressed so that we end up with a normalized number. It's very common. I'd, I'd say it's almost always that we end up with an adjusted NOI when we're doing an acquisition. When we report our operational NOI to all of our members in the total return fund and in our other investments, it's very common to have adjustments to operational NOI. Generally there, we're simply calling those out with some notes, but on occasion we actually do change the math. And again, it's for the same reason. We want to make sure we end up with apples to apples to apples comparisons, and there may be events that cause us to not be able to do that if we don't make an adjustment. And then the final piece would be we're getting ready to go to market. And we absolutely, when we go to market, want to be able to paint an accurate picture. That doesn't always mean that we're actually going to be increasing the amount of NOI. It, it may be that our NOI is overstated and our adjustment is actually going to reduce it. Or conversely, it's possible it's understated and it's going to increase it. What's important is that we provide the data with all the notes and background so that someone can make a uh, valid interpretation of what's going on at the asset. And again, it's always important whenever there's an adjustments to NOI that those things are noted. So if you're in the market for an asset and uh, NOI is part of what you're looking at, so, right, so this wouldn't necessarily be a single family uh, property, maybe you're buying a fourplex or uh, you know, a 16 plex or something else, and they give you the financials, uh, you're going to want to be able to not only look at all the data, but if they've made any adjustments, you'll want to see the notes that went with that. So let's talk about a couple examples of how we would adjust NOI. So we're looking at purchasing an asset. That's the scenario we're going to use here. And this is our hypothetical asset we've been using, 100 units, uh, $600,000 in annual NOI, so on. Um, we've got a value-add project that the seller has been working on. And they have financed that with capital, right? They put cash in and they've been capitalizing those improvements, which is an appropriate way to go about doing it. Now, while they've been doing that, they're actually addressing a lot of more traditional and typical repairs and maintenance items. So for example, maybe when they're going in and they're changing out appliances, well, they're dealing with the fact that there's a leaky dishwasher uh, or a sink or plumbing or some other issue that happens to be there, and they're getting it addressed now when it would normally be a repairs and maintenance kind of item. So we would look to make an adjustment to the repairs and maintenance line to move it to more normal levels. Now, this doesn't mean that they've been playing with the books. They actually have been booking this correctly. It simply means that repairs and maintenance is understated in that T12. And to get a real assessment of what the NOI is over that period of time, we'd want to make this adjustment. So our annual non-adjusted NOI is $600,000. 
And we're going to just, for our purposes here, say that uh, repairs and maintenance is understated by $200 a unit. So $200 times uh, 100 units is $20,000. So we would have an adjusted NOI now of 580000 So the 600000 minus the 20000 Now that's done, uh, and that has an impact of one of two ways, or a combination thereof. So either the asset value has now decreased to 9.7 million. So if we're using that six cap number that we had previously, uh, our $10 million asset is now only worth 9.7. So we'd say, hey, it's, if we're going to purchase this from you, we're going to pay a little less. Or it's still $10 million, but now the cap rate isn't 6%, it's 5.8%. So one of the two uh, happened, or as I said, some potentially some combination uh, thereof. Now, let's look at the flip side of that. Same value-add project, but in this instance, the seller fully expensed everything. They put all of it on the uh, T12. They expensed all of it while they did the work along the way. So repairs and maintenance is overstated, meaning that NOI is understated. So we would go in and, again, make that same kind of adjustment. And we're going to make the assumption here that it's just $200 in the opposite direction. So... $200 a unit, 100 units, $20,000. Now the adjusted NOI, instead of going down, goes up from $600,000 to $620,000. Again, a couple potential impacts. Either the value of the asset is now $10.3 million because there really was a higher net operating income, or it's still going to be a $10 million deal and we're just getting a better cap rate at a 62 now, that leads us to cap rates, and uh, cap rates is probably one of the most, if not the most popular topic uh, that comes up on the, uh, on the podcast here. So uh, we're not going to go into great detail, but I want to talk enough about it because it is related to NOI, and that's how people think of cap rates. So cap rates or capitalization rate is... A starting point for valuing an asset. It's not the be-all, end-all. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But it is a handy way to start and say, well, what do you think that's worth? The formal definition that we use is capitalization rate is the unlevered rate of return on an investment. So if I invest $10 million dollars, now, I'm not looking at how much leverage I put on it and how much actual cash I put in versus debt. $10 million goes in, and I get $600,000 of NOI. Well, $600,000 divided by the $10 million is 6%. So I'm getting a 6% return on my $10 million investment. Again, unlevered. Now, what's handy about that is... I can now go shopping and look at various assets, and if I see an asset and I look at the T12, and after making some adjustments, I say, oh, there's $600,000 in NOI, and this market's about a six cap. Well, $600,000 divided by 6% gives me $10 million. Oh, this is about a $10 million property. So it's very handy for what you would, I guess, describe as a hand grenade kind of number. Now, what's it actually worth? Probably not $10 million. Might be worth less, might be worth more. Uh, that's going to come from some other math, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Now, one of the places where cap rates 
actually has uh, a lot more value is in helping with value-add investments, helping think about them. Now, again, uh, a cap rate is not a, a known quantity where I can guarantee that I'm moving my value by this much based on making an improvement in my income, uh, but it gives me a good enough hand grenade number, as I said, that I can make some assessments about an investment. So one of the things, for example, that we like and we've implemented at all of our properties in the last year are package lockers. Tenants love them. We love them. Uh, they're, they're a very inexpensive amenity. Uh, tenants are more than happy to pay the few dollars a month that we ask them to pay. Uh, and with so much online uh, retail activity in the last year, in particular as a result of the uh, pandemic and the uh, desire for folks to not go out uh, as often, uh, they've been a real hit. So uh, let's say that we've got $5 a month fees for the package lockers, and we've got our 100 units, and we've got 12 months. So that's $6,000 in potential annual NOI. Yes, there's going to be some uh, vacancy number that'll creep in there. And uh, because it is money that we collect, the property management fee is going to go up a hair, right? But let's just use the 6000 So we've got $6,000 in incremental NOI at 6% would mean we've added $100,000 in value to the property. And package lockers don't cost $100,000. If they did, then you'd just be trading money, rearranging deck chairs, whatever, uh, uh, however you want to uh, say that. Uh, whatever cliche you want to use, that's the word I was looking for. Uh, and you probably wouldn't do it. If it was going to cost you $50,000, oh, okay, I can double my money. Is that good? Well, what if it only costs $20,000? Oh, great. Sign me up, right? So that's kind of the way you would use cap rates when we think about value add. Now, the thing I like to remind folks about cap rates is um, they really help more as a concept than the actual math. Um, when investors make an investment, they're buying or selling net operating income. Yes, there's a building involved and so on, but we're really buying and selling businesses. That's, that's what happens when we invest in a multifamily property. Um, so cap rate and value or price, depending upon which side of the equation you want to look at it, are inversely related. So if we pay a higher price, then we do that with a lower cap rate. And if we pay a lower price, then we're getting a higher cap. So for example, a 5% cap rate means we're paying $20 for every dollar of net operating income that we're buying. At uh, 6%, that drops to $16 and change. At 7%, it's $14. At 8%, we're only paying $12.50. That's a pretty big difference than $20, right? And yet it's still the same dollar of NOI. Now, why, why would I do that? Well, how many people want to buy the property that has the 8 cap? If there's a relatively modest amount of demand relative to the amount of supply of those deals, then you're going to see those kind of cap rates. If, on the other hand, you've got a great deal more demand and a relatively small amount of supply, you're going to see lower cap rates. And again, remember, they're inversely related. So a lower cap rate means a higher price per dollar of NOI. On our $600,000 NOI property, the difference is 
fairly substantial. It's it's four and a half million dollars on a five cap. It's a twelve million dollar property uh, at six cap, which is what we've been using for our examples. It's ten million. At seven cap, it drops to eight point six, and it. And an eight cap, it drops all the way down to seven and a half million. So that's a pretty big swing. And obviously, if it was a higher cap, right, eight percent or nine or ten, that's going to affect your value add equation as well. So when you see higher cap rate properties, you may see less value add work. It's one of the reasons we like the Goldilocks class, the Class B assets, which in the markets we're active in live in the mid-six to high-five kind of world uh, in terms of cap rates. So um, uh, just a couple final thoughts on cap rates. Um, they're not real. There's, it's not like there's an organization out there that sets the cap rate or that it's tracked like interest rates. And uh, when, I, when we sign a purchase agreement, it actually has a cap rate listed in it. It's just a mathematical construct to help estimate value. Um, it, it does help communicate the relationship between NOI and value. Um, but be careful when you look at a purchase cap on a deal. I get a lot of questions from folks when we put an acquisition together about what the purchase cap is. They, they are fairly manipulatable because you can make adjustments to, the, to NOI and, and do it very honestly with a great deal of integrity, but it moves the purchase cap around quite a bit. And you're not really buying their NOI. You're buying the revenue stream, but you're going to have your own operating expense structure, which may be greater or less than what the current operating expenses are. And some items, in particular some uncontrollables like taxes as an example, uh, may move uh, considerably. So watch what the lenders do. Lenders don't look a great deal at the existing expense lines on the T12. We all do, and they do, uh, to see if there's anything to learn. They're much more focused, though, on what the revenue uh, side of that looks like. Um, now, keep in mind that a cap rate's a great way to have a conversation, but ultimately the price that we get for an asset when we go to sell it or the price we pay if we're going to buy it is a function of the supply and demand of assets of that type, right? So if there's not a lot of deals for sale out there that look like what we're trying to buy, and there's a lot of money trying to chase those deals, then you're going to see a higher price and a lower cap rate. Conversely, if there's not a lot of interest in that property, uh, and, the, and there's a lot of other places you could invest and get similar kinds of returns with similar kinds of assets, and there's not that much money chasing it, then you will see a higher cap rate and a lower price. Ultimately, the dollar amount that we agree to pay someone or that we agree to accept from someone if we're selling is a function of an underwrite of each individual asset. Underwrites are what drive actual dollar amounts, not cap rates. So some non-NOI items that affect the things we've talked about. So these will affect the value of the asset, equity growth. They absolutely affect cash and so on. So part of that is the debt structure, right? So if we have more debt on an asset, uh, you have higher leverage. If you have higher leverage, you can have higher returns. If you have higher returns, you can... Uh, 
you can tolerate paying more for some NOI than you might in other instances. Uh, the interest rate you have, if you can secure low interest, right? Right now, there's a lot of great inexpensive money available out there. If you can secure low interest, then you have the ability to potentially pay more for an asset in your underwrite, or if you can buy it at a really favorable uh, dollar per NOI or cap rate, then you're going to be in a position where you can actually make a better return. Is there an interest-only period? How long is it? This is a bit of a double-edged sword, so it's nice that it helps cash, but it doesn't pay down any of the, um, any of the uh, principal in the, in the note. Uh, and you can see a 2 3 4% annual return just by paying principal down. So uh, interest-only is something to be looked at in terms of what, does it make sense on any one individual deal. Um, capital project requirements. So there might be great NOI on a property, but is there 100,000, 300,000, 500,000 of deferred maintenance that needs to be uh, done? What kind of value-add work is available? Are there opportunities to increase NOI by making very smart targeted investments? Or has all that kind of been done, and this is more of a momentum play where NOI is just going to grow modestly. And then the final piece would be, and this is true if you're working with us or anybody that looks like us, is what are the management fees? Because management fees come out below net operating income, but they're part of that cash calculation. So you've got debt service, you've got some uh, uh, capital reserve dollars that are set aside with the lender, and then you've got management fees. And so understanding how that fits into uh, the investment is also an important part of it that's not NOI. So what's beyond NOI? Well, beyond NOI in our mind is really when we're thinking about exiting an asset, and whether it's a, a final exit, right? We're going to exit the asset and cash out and distribute proceeds and everybody's going to pay their tax bill and move on, or it's uh, the first step in a 1031, right, a sale exchange. So we're going to sell, and then we're going to use a 1031 to roll into a replacement asset. When we are going to market, we really want to have two thoughts in mind, and these thoughts actually have to start all the way back at the beginning when we're acquiring the asset. And the first is we want to be in a position where we can demonstrate there's the unique value in the asset that we have that we are going to, uh, to sell. And what we're doing by doing that is we want to separate ourselves from the other opportunities that are out there. The more we look like everybody else, then the larger the supply of potential deals are for those investors, and more supply means a lower price for us. So if we can position ourselves so that we're in a growth market, or we're in a position where uh, there's upside opportunity on the property, or where we have realized some of the rent growth, but not all of the rent growth. Uh, if we can do things that make our asset look unique relative to others, then that reduces effectively the supply of assets and improves our price. The other, and I just referred to it a little bit, so it's sort of the other side of the coin, if you will, is we want to leave meat on the bone. So when we implement an acquisition, we want to have a very clear plan for adding value 
and we want to be able to identify items that will add value down the road that we could potentially demonstrate but not fully implement so that that becomes an opportunity for the next person that comes along. And that means we'll have more people potentially interested in buying our asset when we get to an exit. If we did everything we could possibly do so there was nothing left to be done, we would have maximized NOI. There are absolutely people out there that want to buy properties like that, but that's X size. If we leave some meat on the bone, we not only have that group that potentially would still have some interest, but we have a whole other group of folks that are looking for value-add properties, and that's a much larger, larger piece of the market. So we want to leave some meat on the bone. So for example, if we were to identify uh, washer dryers and washer dryer hookups as an opportunity, we might do 10% of the property. Put the washer dryer hookups in, rent out the units, actually get good numbers on what it cost to do that work and what the what the incremental rents were that we were able to charge so that we had real data to be able to show someone and then stop and leave the, the balance, leave the 80% plus for those folks to do when they purchase it from us. And that's going to attract more organizations that are interested in making a value-add investment than if we went ahead and said, wow, this is a great idea. Let's just do all of them. All right. If you have questions about anything we've talked about during the three weeks that we've looked at the importance of NOI, shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com. Email me and I'll be happy to send you a copy of the slide deck. Please visit the Learning Center at marapolling.com multifamily real estate channel, look for Podcast Plus, and you'll, you'll find not only this week's session, but the last two sessions. You can watch all three together. And if you have any questions at all beyond an email, I'm more than happy to hop on a phone call and answer those questions for you. So thanks for joining us this week. Please join me again next week for another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling. Mm-hmm.